This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 16th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Brian Dixon. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Russell. Um, And welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you are our guest this morning, just a special welcome to you. Thank you for uh, coming and visiting with us. Uh, My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here uh, alongside uh, Brian Kirkman, uh, Mark Hoxo, and our lead teaching and preaching pastor, Sam Ford, who is on sabbatical right now. And he will be on sabbatical till the end of August. So church, I just want to thank you. Thank you for praying for us praying for your leaders. Um, We feel those prayers. We covet those prayers. We need those prayers. Um, But especially for Sam and his family right now, be be praying for them as they rest from ministry, but more so for ministry, which is why they're resting. As they come back and they join us at the end of August, um, our prayer is that they do so feeling well rested and ready uh, to dive back in with us. Uh, through the summer, we've been going through our series through Second Timothy called Unshackled. And if you don't know this, I want to make this known that we have a study guide that goes along with the, the sermon series that we do. And so this is actually really helpful. If you're looking to get into God's Word more, this is a way uh, to help do that as it, it helps you as an individual just go through God's Word and what we're teaching here, uh, as help you with your family teaching and going through that, or as a group, if a group of you decide to get together, just a helpful way to dive into God's Word um, and what you're hearing Sunday mornings. Um, Yeah, today we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, so I invite you to get your Bibles out, open those up, and uh, we'll get going in there. If you don't have a Bible, if you forgot yours, um, there are Bibles uh, just outside the front entrance or at the back desk. Please get one. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that one. That's yours, our gift to you. Read it, study it, know it. Um, But yeah, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. As you're turning there, uh, I just want to take a little bit of time to set the stage and to recap uh, some things that we need to keep at the forefront as we're going through this letter. Uh, each week we go through a text and we pull it out and we, we examine it, we look at it, but we got to remember that this is part of an entire letter that's meant to be read in its entirety. And so as we're doing that, we're reminded that this is Paul's last letter. It's the last one written to uh, the most important pastor in his life, Timothy, to the most important church he had planted, which was the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. Paul is writing to them, and he loves Timothy. We see at the opening of this letter, he expresses that love. But we see also for the Ephesian church, for their leaders, he loves them a lot, and they love him as well. Actually, in in Acts chapter 20, we see as Paul calls them together to let them know that he is leaving, that they are not going to see him anymore. And we get just this picture, this glimpse into the relationship that they have with each other. And I'm going to read this from Acts chapter 20, verse 37. And there there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So we see here just the relationship that he has with these leaders, these elders. There's a bond there that was built from years of ministry together. 
men coming alongside Paul and learning from him, and he pouring into their lives and loving them well as they did that together. Now, though Paul left them physically, his concern for them, his love for them, uh, both for their spiritual growth and their, their well-being, grew as he left. And we see that in the letters that he writes to the Ephesians and also to Timothy, that his love for them has not faded, and that it just grows. His concern that they remain steadfast in their faith and in their walk with Jesus. In fact, in this uh, letter, 2 Timothy, um, if you remember, I shared a little while ago the three themes that really stick out, them being uh, engage in trust and endure. We see in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 6, Paul says, fan into flame the gift God has given you. He also says in verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Engage. Don't forget to engage the power of God's grace and to share. Then towards the end of chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 2, we see the shift into entrust. He says this in chapter 1, verse 14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Then in chapter 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Take what you've heard, what you've learned, all the things you've seen, and entrust that to other men who are trustworthy that will be able to teach others also. And as Mark preached last week, Pastor Mark, uh, we saw towards the end of chapter 2 the shift into the third theme, which is endure. Now remember that Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is a pastor. And Timothy needs to be reminded of his aim in life, what he is called to do, which is to shepherd the flock among him, to tell them about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to endure, to be persistent in that, to keep going. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says this, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This verse, I believe, is really a springboard for us this morning into what we're going to be studying and looking into uh, in chapter 3. Because a misdirected leader, one who is wrongly handling the word of truth, is going to devastate the lives of those that are under their care. So it is important for Timothy and the elders and the elders here at this church and every elder that is at a church proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord to be mindful of this, to rightly handle the word of truth. So with all that said, let's dive into our text this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says this, But understand this, that in the last days, There will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people." 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Also, or excuse me, always learning and never able to arrive to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those two men. And this is God's word. So the first thing in verse 1 that really stuck out right away as I was going through this and, and I was wrestling with was this phrase that Paul uses, last days. Like, wait, what, wait, what does he mean by that? When he uses that phrase, what, 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 is he, what is he getting at here? Because honestly, that phrase has been abused and misused. And as you look in God's word, that phrase has a couple different meanings, a couple different ways you can look at it. In the Old Testament, uh, prophets would use this phrase, uh, such as Daniel, and we would use it in such a way to talk about the entirety of history, meaning their time, where they were at at that point in time, to when God would establish his kingdom, would come again, what we see in Revelation. But Paul, he's talking about time differently in our text this morning. He's referring to it differently, referring to it in the same way that the writer of Hebrews does when he says this in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The phrase, last days here, uh, is the same as in our text this morning. And Paul is talking about a period of time, a season, or an era, as opposed to how it was used specifically by Daniel, capturing all of time. But what time is he talking about then? What season is he talking about? Well, specifically, he's getting to when Jesus first came and when Jesus will come again. That time frame is what he's talking about, which is what we are living in now. So in essence, we are living in the last days. Yes, these are the last days. If you're anything like me, though, I struggle to believe that that's true, that that's a reality that we actually live in, that there's an urgency to how we are to live our lives for Christ and share that message. I struggle with that. I struggle with believing that. Often for me, the last few days before I take a vacation are the days I end up working like the hardest, making sure, okay, everything's lined up, people know what's going on, bases are covered, so, so much so that when I actually get to that first day of vacation, I'm just like, oh, thank God. Thank God it's here. And you know, heaven, heaven is going to be that moment forever. Oh, thank God. Thank God we're here. But we're not there yet. We are still working hard in the last few days up to that moment, making sure that the gospel is proclaimed, that people know Jesus and are living it out, as many people as possible. 
That is our aim. That is what we're working towards. That is what God has called us to. Just imagine with me for a moment what our prayer lives would look like, what our time in God's Word would look like, what our relationship with each other would look like in the world if we truly believe that these are the last days, that Jesus is coming again. And he's not coming like he did before, riding a donkey and in peace. He's coming on a war horse to judge the living and the dead. The king is coming. He's coming. Like Paul says in our text this morning, there's an urgency. And as Jesus' time nears, that difficult times, times of difficulty, will become more and more frequent. They'll become more and more intense. Now, I could take this time to go into, you know, different statistics about all that's going on in our world. And I really don't need to go there for a couple reasons. Number one, you know that. You know, we all can see you take one minute to watch the news, and it's like, and scene, okay. That's just the local news, you know. It's like, man. You know, take, thinking through just how in our nation, our culture, our society, that identifies as Christian, when we look at the statistics of how low Sunday attendance is, and is continuing to get lower and lower, how less and less people are identifying as Christians, how Christian values are being challenged all the time. I could go there, but it would be misleading and misdirecting us this morning. It would have us think that, well, all the problems that the church is facing is because of outside sources, because of all the stuff that's going on out in our world around us. But what Paul is talking about, and in the context of our text this morning, he is not talking about that. You see in verse 2, he says that uh, for people will be people. That phrase people in some other translations says men, is not speaking of people broadly, of mankind, or, or even speaking of the unbelieving world, he is speaking to and about believers, members of the church. Not without, out there, but within. That is who Paul is talking about here. So in verses uh, 2 through 5, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this again. Keeping that in mind, we're talking about the church here. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, Paul warns. We're given a pretty detailed and extensive list of 18 characteristics of ungodly, runaway men and women who are corrupting the church. 
both in Paul's time, but also what we experience now and will continue to experience. But what is the root of this corruption? What leads well-intended Christians down a road that corrupts them and away from the truth of Scripture, or as Paul puts it, ungodliness? Because in my experience, often as you interact with somebody who ends up going down this road, typically it's not what they intended. I didn't intend for this to happen. I didn't didn't want that to happen. I didn't think that was happening. So what leads a person then to go down that road? Why? Why would they go down that road? Well, work with me here. Let's go to uh, verse 5 of our text. And we're going to work backwards from verse 5 here to narrow down the source of why to see the core sin issue that leads to the others. See in verse 5, as you work backwards, that people have the appearance of godliness yet deny its power, are lovers of pleasure rather than of God, swollen with conceit, reckless, treacherous, not loving good, brutal, without self-control, slanderous, unappeasable, heartless, unholy, ungrateful, disobedient to their parents, abusive, arrogant, proud, and lovers of money because they are lovers of self. Self-love is the core sin issue leading to the other sins listed. Self-love over the love for the Lord is what cast Lucifer out of heaven, is what led Adam and Eve to to disobey God. John Calvin an influential French theologian, uh, pastor, reformer during the Protestant Reformation, he wrote this about the sin issue, saying, For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has good reason for exalting himself. There is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots that most noxious pest, self-love. For our Western culture, though, for us today, this really disputes what we have been taught and heard our whole lives. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-fulfillment, self-image. This is the anthem that has been sung and played over and over and over and over again for decades. It's an anthem, though, created by an unbiblical secular psychology that since the late 20th century has been embraced by the church, which has led to messages being taught today that you cannot rightly love God and your neighbor unless you learn how to rightly love yourself first. Now, as I say that, I know there's probably some of you going, well, wait a second. Well, yeah. But hold on a minute. Where is that in Scripture? Where is that taught in the Bible? Because the Old and New Testament, we don't see that message. In fact, Jesus sums up both when he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. Like John Calvin said, that your self-peace, we so quickly run to that. We so quickly elevate that. We so quickly put that at the top of the list as the first and greatest. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2 has to say in contrast to this kind of teaching. It says, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As followers of Jesus, our greatest and leader, our king, the one we look to, how much more should we be acting in that way, submitting ourselves to Christ and laying our lives down just like our king did for us? Self-love is the opponent to godliness and to genuine friendship and fellowship. And this is the point that Paul is making in our text this morning. That it's not the kind of love that is evil, but the wrongly elevated object of that love, which is self. When self is elevated, God is not. God is lowered. His ways are lowered, not considered anymore. Because what I want and what I need and self-love now being at the forefront, well, that takes God out of the picture for us. And over time, creates a lifestyle that is ungodly because no longer is God the aim, the goal. No longer is my aim in life to pursue Jesus and follow Jesus and be known as a follower of Jesus. It's get what I need to get now. Do what I got to do now to enjoy my best life now. Misdirected love like this leads to misdirected lives. But how are Christians being misdirected like this? That's the core question that really gets us to what Paul is really talking about this morning. We can narrow it down even more this morning as Paul is talking to church members, specifically the leaders. He is going after them, Timothy and the Ephesian Leaders saying, this is the kind of leaders you need to not be and avoid. It is a misdirected leader who has a misdirected love and life that leads the church away from the truth. Besides our text this morning, uh, in 1 Timothy, if you turn just one page, two pages over, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we see one of the only other times that Paul prophesies to Timothy, giving him a similar warning 
about misdirected, misguided leaders. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. How? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, so what does that mean? What does that look like? What does a insincere leader look like with a seared conscience who is misdirected, misguided? As I say that, um, I'm assuming that for maybe some of you, you're thinking in your head like, okay, like here's the list of what that looks like, or maybe there's a person in mind that you have. But what I want us to do is not necessarily go there, but go to God's word. What does Paul say? What does Paul being led by the Holy Spirit of God have to teach us about what a misdirected leader looks like? Going back to uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 6 through 8. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. There are three things here that Paul points out. Three uh, qualities of a misdirected leader, leaders that you need to avoid. The first being this, we see from verse, verse 6, he says, those who take advantage of the vulnerable and weak. Now, you know, when we make a statement like that, we start thinking, well, yeah, you know, like a person that's just like totally obviously doing that. But what about the person that is lording over others by, hey, you got some sin in your life, deal with it. Okay, um, but not ever willing to get in the trenches with that person. Not willing to give them the full truth, but have truths and leaving the weak and vulnerable to try and deal with whatever they got to deal with on their own. When we see Jesus himself, our best and good leader, not doing that, walking alongside people, helping them through their weaknesses to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Avoid such leaders. The second thing we see are those who are always pursuing knowledge but never arriving to the truth of Jesus, his humanity, his deity, his glory, that Jesus of the Bible is who he says he is and who God the Father says he is, that he is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. But avoid the leaders that are always pursuing knowledge and, and probing and asking the questions, did God really say? But never really getting to the answer of Jesus. Did God really say that? Do we really have to be that intense about this? I mean, the Bible's old. Some of those teachings are just too old. You know, we just need to update some things here and, and chill out a little bit. 
Because you think how often and how often things are being taught just within our own culture here where moralism's at the top. Live a good life. Be a good person. And Jesus is not in the equation there. Just be a good person. That's what being a Christian is all about. Doing the right thing. Being nice to people. Hey, and guess what? If you do that really well, God's going to bless you. He's going to pour out his blessings. Guess what? God already did through Jesus. Every blessing that we could ever need and want was given to us in Jesus. And avoid the leader who will not tell you that. The third thing we see, leaders to avoid are those who oppose godly leaders and the message they proclaim about Jesus. Just like the example he gives of the two men who went to Moses and opposed him. And he gives this example of these two men and and this in Exodus. Why? Because he's showing us this how silly it is for to put the God of the universe, all-powerful, up against man's wisdom. What happens in this story? They're crushed under the weight of God's wisdom and goodness. They can't compete. Just like these men that he brings up. The reality is that false teachers exist and they will continue to grow in numbers as the time of Jesus' return nears. But Paul reminds Timothy of something that is powerful and awesome in verse 9. If you want to read with me. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two, of those two men. In essence, Paul is saying what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. Hallelujah. That is awesome. That's powerful. That's encouraging. But the truth still remains that there will be people within the church that will attack the church, that the church will be under attack because of this. And the leadership of those churches need to be on guard, first looking and evaluating their own lives and how they're living it, but also protecting the flock. Protecting the flock. Uh, So, what does a good leader then look like? What does a directed leader look like? Christ-like leader look like? Someone worth following? Do we seek out those leaders? I mean, should we follow those leaders? Like, what what do we do here? Well, if we keep going in verse 10, Paul says something pretty interesting to Timothy here. He says, you, however, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and my persecutions that God has delivered me from. Or in other words, yes, there are godly men worth following to mimic and partner with in ministry, to come alongside, to suffer in uh, sharing the gospel and carrying that load. That's both 
physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausting. So I want to take time, and we spend you know, enough time talking about the leaders to avoid, as Paul has pointed out. Let's talk about leaders worth looking to. The ones that are directed, that we should follow, that are Christ-like. Uh, as I started my sermon, uh, I did so in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to go back there. So I invite you to go to Acts chapter 20. We were reminded of Paul's love for the Ephesian elders. But what did he say right before he left? What were his last words to them in person? It's this message from Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 26, that I want to derive just what a good leader looks like. Remember that this is the last time Paul is speaking to these men in person, that they were sorrowful because they were able to walk alongside him and see what it actually looks like to do this thing called ministry for Jesus. And this is what he says to them. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted truths to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I am... Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There are seven things here that we see that we could pull that are marks of just a good leader, someone who loves Jesus and is guided, directed, going in the right direction. And the first thing we see from Verse 27 is that a good leader worth following boldly proclaims the whole counsel of God. They're not withholding information from you so that they would be able to lord over you. I am not your high priest, Jesus is. You do not need to come to me to seek forgiveness unless you've wronged me and that needs to happen. That's the thought. But if you're feeling guilty and there's something, the sin that's evidence in your life, you do not need to come to me to seek that forgiveness. Jesus has given it to you. Go to him. He is your high priest. He is the one we go to and make things right with. Boldly proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Second, a good leader protects the flock from wolves. Those who will come in and lie steal and cheat the church as much as they can 
to pull them away from the truth, to have them seeking a person, not Jesus. Follow this man, not him. All that stuff they're teaching you is old, fuddy-duddy stuff, but I got some cool things. Come check it out. Guess what? What Jesus has said is the only thing that will last forever. His teaching will go on forever. His word will go on forever. What I have to say and think will not. Yep. When we leave here, anything of me is, that's it. But his word will keep going and going and going and going because it is eternal, because it is powerful, because it is the words of Jesus Christ, the Lord. The third thing a good leader does is he admonishes you with care. Sometimes I think it's, I chuckle as a pastor. I'm going to be honest, forthright. When somebody comes to me and they're surprised that a pastor admonished them, I couldn't believe it. They told me I was sinning. It's like, isn't that what they're supposed to do? But if we're being honest, we're just being real right now, often when we go to a pastor, we're not looking to be admonished. We're looking to have them go, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay. It'll, it'll, it'll get worked out. There's no, no worries here. But a good leader will tell you the truth. The reason why you are where you're at now is because of the sin you've been holding on to, the self-love that you've been pursuing other than the love of God. And they do so with care. They don't use it to abuse you and to lord over you. But they graciously and gently present these things so that you can see the grace of God that is for you right now to be lived in and to be experienced. Avoid leaders that will not do this for you, that will turn a blind eye to your sin. A leader to follow, number four, builds you up with God's word. It is not enough for me to show up to your place and to give you my thoughts on, you know, hey, you guys are awesome, and like everything's cool, and woo. You know, like a pep talk. Like, all right, you guys, this is cool. No, what a good leader does is builds you up with God's word, the eternal word, the one that lasts forever, the one that Paul talks about later in this chapter as being so powerful, being breathed out by God that it can equip you for every good work. A good leader is going to take you to God's word. Do you know what God's word says about this? Let's go there. Let's talk about it. The fifth thing is a, a good leader is a hard worker. Works hard in the shadows, under the radar, so that when you show up on a Sunday morning, you're not thinking about the details that need to happen to make all this happen. You're able to show up and think about Jesus. Think about the message Things don't just happen, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. Like, like, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, that, was, that went great. It's like, yeah, that was a lot of work that went into making sure people were informed, things were lined up, so that you were able to show up and not have to think about that. 
not have to be distracted by those kind of details, but to be fully focused on the Lord. The sixth thing we see, verse 35, a good leader helps the vulnerable and the weak, is willing to walk alongside those who need the help. Sometimes it's, it's the very obvious uh, seen weakness and need that's like, hey, yeah, we'll walk alongside this person in an illness or what have you. But also that spiritual weakness, the times where people, I'm struggling here. All right, let's walk together. I'll walk with you. I will help you by getting in the trenches with you and showing you the way out. Jesus is over here. Repent and let's go to him. Let's follow him. Let's learn what he has to say. The last thing is, a good leader imitates Jesus so well that they leave you thinking about Jesus more than themselves. A good leader would have you in love with Jesus and not them. Now with all this said, though, I want to be clear about what I'm not saying here. I am not saying, now go, find great leaders. Follow those guys because there is no great leader great enough to ever overshadow or replace Jesus, our King. He is the one we look to. What I am saying is look to Jesus and the men whom he has placed in leadership. If they are not like Jesus, they are not worth following. But how am I to know if they're like Jesus if I don't know Jesus? So church is important to be in the word, to know Jesus. What did Jesus actually have to say? Jesus said that if you love me, you will follow my commands. Well, what did he command us to do? How did he deal with situations, both confrontation and things of that nature? I mean, how do we, how do we deal with those things? Go to Jesus. Find out what the Holy Scriptures have to say about our Lord and Savior. In fact, I'm going to share just a little bit what this has to say about our King and our Lord. And I just want you to hear this right now. I don't want you to, you know, thumb through your Bibles and try and find it. If you need to know the Scriptures I'm referencing, you can come talk to me. But I just want you to hear this. Listen to how the Bible describes your King, your Savior, your friend. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, him, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be distinguished, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And our king said this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is our king. This is who we serve. He has not left us alone. He has gifted us his Holy Spirit, and he's coming again. And these are the last days that we are living in. Our time to work hard, to cultivate the ground, to till that ground, to spread the seeds of the gospel that God could do his work by creating the growth, by allowing people to know and believe and follow Jesus as Lord. Do we believe this, church? Amen. Amen. This is... This is such a powerful message that we get to share. We get to, we get to, we get to. This is not a have to. We get to do this. Jesus is our king. Jesus is the source of our faith. He is everything to us and for us, the aim of our life. This has been my prayer for this sermon is that we would leave here not looking for great leaders, but looking to the great King, Jesus. Because it's through him that we'll be able to identify the brothers in the faith, sisters in the faith, those who are following Jesus as they should, those who are willing to lead, have been called to lead, and will do so humbly in pursuing Jesus the whole way. Not perfectly, don't hear that, but humbly the best they can to share Jesus with you, the full picture of him. This is our word for us this morning. Let's pray together.